So to reverse that psychology, a question that I would urge everyone who's listening to answer for themselves, not just write down a piece of paper, is how would the world change if you were an exceptional communicator? I'm David Oti, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. What is your gut reaction when someone asks you to speak in public? Is it a knot in your stomach? If so, you're not alone. In this episode, you will meet Canadian speaker and speaking coach Brendan Kumarasamy. Brendan and I had a wide-ranging conversation that covered several of the interesting questions he asks his coaching clients to help them get over their fear of public speaking. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Oti, and as you may be aware, on this program we have a mix of content and conversations, and today's episode is going to be a conversation. I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Brendan Kumarasamy, who is uh, out of Canada, and uh, I'm very pleased to have you here today, Brendan. Pleasure is mine, David. Thanks for having me. So, Brendan and I connected recently and discovered a, an overlapping interest in helping people communicate more effectively, particularly with presentations, be they in person or online, such as this. And he's got a slightly different niche than I've got, which uh, I'm sure I'll be happy to tell you about. So, I'm interested in knowing more about how you got into doing this. Brendan, go ahead and, go ahead and take it from there and give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, absolutely, David. So, when I was in university... I used to do these things called case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So other guys my age were playing football or basketball or some other sport that I'm not really equipped for. (laughs) I did case competitions. So instead of playing baseball every day, I was presenting almost every day of my university career. And it was through that experience that I ended up having the idea to start the YouTube channel Master Talk because I realized a lot of the students I was coaching when I started coaching when I was 19. And I started looking at individuals and I said, wait a second, all of the information I'm sharing isn't available for free. So that's what led to the YouTube channel, what eventually became a business as well. A YouTube channel that became a business. So congratulations on that. And so through your YouTube channel Master Talk, people sought you out for coaching. Is that right? Absolutely. So what ended up happening is I would say year, a year and a half into, into building, I, I had a great six-figure corporate job at IBM, but I, I, you know, a lot of these individuals started reaching out and I realized that what I wanted to do from an impact perspective was much more aligned than, than climbing the corporate ladder. So that's what led to that decision. From an impact perspective, I like that phrase because, you know, I, I'm a, a speaker and trainer myself as well as being a coach, and I think it's all about the impact you can have. You know, when you've got the privilege of someone's attention, whether it's one person or an auditorium full, uh, for some finite amount of time, you've got the privilege of of having an impact, making a lasting difference. I like to say that a good speaker is one who makes a lasting difference to their audience. And a better speaker makes more of a difference to more audiences more of the time. <laughs> I love so that. you're uh, 
you're helping people become better speakers, one coaching client at a time and, and one viewer of your YouTube channel at a time. Absolutely. And you and me both. <laughs> so uh, I, what, are some, what are some tips that you like to give to the people who come to you based on what they've heard on your YouTube channel? Absolutely. So I'll give you the three easiest ones. Number one is a question. So a lot of people, when they think about communication, David, a lot of the languaging is generally negative. So when you think of the word public speaking, we think stress, we think nerves, we think anxiety, we think fear. So to reverse that psychology, a question that I would urge everyone who's listening to answer for themselves, not just write down a piece of paper, is how would the world change if you were an exceptional communicator? How would the world change if you were an exceptional communicator? What a great question. Absolutely. And what this does is it helps people reflect on, wait a second, if I got better at sharing my story, sharing the data in your niche, what you do with your clients, imagine how the world would be different. Like in the context of what you do, there's so much academia that is locked into incredible papers. But through your work, now what's going to happen is that information now gets translated so that everyone can understand it. And I think there's a beauty and a magic to that. Beauty and a magic. You're, you're exactly right. And, and the, the information uh, gets, gets transferred when there's a connection between speaker and audience. And that's where I think story comes into play, because we know from experimental science <laughs> that when you hear a story, it engages the same neural pathways as when you're experiencing that thing for yourself because of the, the flood of oxytocin in your brain and that makes the audience feel empathy for the speaker. So I often tell people that your information goes nowhere <clears throat> Excuse me, until you meet the needs of your audience. Absolutely. Do you work with speakers on understanding what their audiences need from them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One, one tip I give around that, which is a bit unconventional, is I just say have dinner with them. Like actual dinner, not uh, hypothetical dinner. Like literally sit down with the people you want to serve and start asking them questions like, if you were to change the way I explain my ideas back to you, how would you change them? If you were to explain my own idea back to me, how would you explain it? And if there was one thing that you would change in the way that I explain my ideas, what would you change and why? These are the questions that lead to insights. And the deeper the connection you have with your audience to the point that you have dinner with them, the more empathetic you are to them and the easier it is for you to share and scale your message to the world. Share and scale, right? And the more empathetic they are toward you. So you said your first tip was asking that question. I'll let you pick it up from there. Absolutely. So that's the first one. The second one is understanding how to practice public speaking. So what most individuals do, David, is when they get a presentation, they usually just bring it up, like they create the whole deck, and then they present it through like this, start to bottom. I don't actually do it that way. The way I think about it is public speaking is like a jigsaw puzzle. You know those pieces that we used to do as kids, those mm -hmm. toys? Mm -hmm. Right. So let's say I asked you the question back, David, if you're working on a jigsaw puzzle, it's not meant to be a hard one. <laughs> which pieces would you start with first and why? Oh, I always start with the edge pieces because they're the, the easiest to identify and they, and they give me a frame for everything else I'm doing. Absolutely. Perfect. So now the question you ask yourselves is why don't we do that in public speaking? Because in mm. public speaking, we do the opposite. We start the middle first. We shove a bunch of content 
Mm-hmm. We get to the presentation. We ramble throughout the entire thing. And then the last slide sounds something like this. Uh, yeah, so uh, thanks. Yeah. Or, or what I really hate is, uh, so if there's no more questions, then I guess we're all done. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. That's a common one. So in the context of the jigsaw puzzle, I always recommend start with the edges first. Practice your introduction 50 times. Not mm-hmm. five times. Do it 50 times. 50 seems like a big number, but your introduction is not that long. It's like a minute or two. That's right. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, terrible movie, right? Same <laughs> yeah. thing for the conclusion. Right, right. Because you've only got a few seconds with your audience when you start for them to make a decision in your favor as to whether they like you and want to hear more of what you have to say. And then last words linger. I'm a big advocate for if you're giving a technical presentation and you plan to take questions, don't make questions the very last thing. I like to tell people, get to a point in your presentation where you know you have a certain number of minutes left, including time for questions. So get your meeting planner to tell you the whole allotted time with the question, because often they'll break that out as a separate amount of time. And then you'll get to a point, and I'll encourage people to say, Now, I have a couple of minutes of closing remarks, but before we get to those, I have five, ten, however many minutes to take your questions. Who has the first one to get us started? And then at the end of that, I'll say, that was all the questions we have time for. Now, let me give you those promised closing remarks so that you've got an edge piece at the end. I love your analogy there. So you've got an edge piece and not just a trailing off. Absolutely. And, and I will love what you shared as well, the point about having that structure so that people know what the total time is, because you're absolutely right. Most, most of the time that that Q&A period, especially when people are working on their thesis, is, is split from, from the actual presentation time. So very good insight there as well. Because I, I think you have to maintain engagement with your audience all the way through to the end. And besides, who wants half the audience getting up and walking out when they decide, well, I don't have a question, so I guess we're done? <laughs> have you ever seen Absolutely. that happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's definitely happened more than once. Right. So your second, second point was about the, the edge principle. Start with the open and close. Right. And, and just to build on that principle one last time and then tackle the middle. But much like any jigsaw puzzle that has a thousand pieces, who does puzzles on their own? Nobody I know. So Mm. do it with your friends, your family, a coach, somebody, and work on that puzzle together. Most people work on their keynotes, their presentations alone. And that's why I think most people find it a chore. Oh, so how do you advise people to work on their keynotes in collaboration with someone else? Great question. So to keep things simple, so there's kind of two categories. One, people who can't afford a coach and people who can't. So let's say you're in the category where you can't afford a coach. What I recommend in that situation is simply just record the whole thing and send it to friends for feedback just to get mm. their general ideas, their points of view on how they should do. And this is what I used to do. And then after, if you get to a point where you can't afford a coach, then it's a different ball game where you can get those results a lot faster because they can give you more pointy points on how to do this. But I think the key is really having a default for action mm-hmm. is involve more people in the process in general, not just for feedback, but also for accountability. Most people oh, don't practice enough. So yes. just having people around you forces. It's, it's kind of the same analogy where the best way to achieve your goals, and they could be any goals, mm-hmm. is to tell everyone you have the goal. To tell everybody you have them, right? Yeah. What do you think of um, 
sitting down across the table with a friend and a couple of cups of coffee or tea and a recording device and just talking through your points first conversationally because that that forces you to use I think different language than what we often use when we sit down to write something out presentationally and then transcribing that conversation and turning that into a first draft I think that's an excellent idea and but I guess it really depends on the person. I think the the magic of communication is there's always a hundred ways of doing the same That's thing. That's right. Uh-huh. And, and what you shared is an excellent point, especially for people who are like, oh, I don't really know how to structure a presentation. But that way they can figure out what makes the most sense for them. But yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a great sure. one. Because they're getting that immediate feedback from someone. Okay, so the second point was about structure. Your end pieces, the beginning and ending, the edge pieces, and then working on the middle iteratively with someone who's giving you feedback. Absolutely. And then the, the third quick tip, favorite right, tip. The, right. <laughs> I would say the third quick tip is, you know, the random word exercise. It's the easiest exercise to do on your own with nobody else watching. And essentially what it is, is you just pick a random word, tissue box, basement, light bulb, and you make a presentation out of thin air oh. and you just do it five times a day. Do it five times a day. Make a presentation out of thin air. Absolutely. Ah, (laughs) I love that idea. Yeah, I'll make up a presentation about the rocking horse I can see in the corner of the basement over here that we had out for my granddaughter when she visited. (laughs) Sure. Um, And and how do you... um, Tie that, tie that back for me to the, the end result that you get from doing that. Mm, absolutely. For the random word exercise, right? right? For the Just random word sure exercise. Absolutely. So, so for me, David, you know, public speaking is all about momentum. Because public speaking is like juggling 18 balls at the same time. One of those balls is vocal tone variety. Another of those balls is filler words. Another of those balls, and it gets really... Um, overwhelming for people who are getting started mm-hmm. because they get seven of those balls right, but they focus on the 11 that they didn't get right, and it discourages them. Versus just saying, hey, here's the simplest exercise you can do. Master that one. Like, get mm-hmm. exceptionally good at that. And once that momentum gets built and they realize that they can be great communicators, then the rest of the process is, is very easy. So the point of the random word is for momentum building. But the other point as well is it helps you practice the harder thing. Because at work, whether you're in the corporate world, whether you're in universities and you're working on your thesis, they're not going to ask you what your opinion about avocados is. Right, They're going to ask you questions related to your thesis or the work that you do. But if you practice the uncomfortable, like you, you make presentations out of avocados, unless you're an avocado researcher, which in <laughs> right. that case doesn't apply <laughs> or to chef. you. Right? Or a chef. <laughs> what this does is these random words improves your resiliency as a speaker. So now mm. anyone could give me literally any word that I can understand. But because we're able to do that word, when we come back to having a conversation about communication, well, that becomes easier because that's our subject matter expertise. It's much like what we do in in Toastmasters. I don't know if you ever participated in Toastmasters or have any familiarity with it, but one part of most Toastmasters Club's meetings is something we call table topics where you're given a, a question or some other prompt and you're expected to stand up and and talk on it for one to two minutes 
which is great practice for the very thing you're talking about. You get called upon in a meeting, somebody says, so Brendan, what is, what is your take on these changes to the budget? And you have a way of encapsulating your thoughts. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. What are some, uh, where, do you, where do you think, you mentioned earlier about um, fear of public speaking and sort of unpacking that by <clears throat> asking that, those questions at the beginning, especially that, that question, how would, repeat that for me, how would the world be different if you were an excellent public speaker? Am I close? Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great rephrase. Okay. Right. How would the world change if you're an exceptional communicator? How would Same the world thing. change if you're an exceptional right. communicator? So that's a way of, of turning around your, your focus onto the, the world. And, and I think we can even talk about the, the microcosm of the world that makes up your audience. How will, how will you, I often encourage people to ask the question, how are you going to improve your audience's condition? by speaking to them. Mm, I, I think that. all of these are really about trying to take the focus off of the fear and onto what the benefit might be of speaking. Where do you think that fear comes from? We talk so much about people fearing public speaking more than anything else but death, <laughs> which I'm a little skeptical of, but I know <laughs> people do get, ang- do get anxious about it, right? Absolutely, David. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, I, I get horrified, too, and I look at these statistics. I was like, how much of this is actually true? But, but I think the, the main idea to help people understand this is it's normal that most of us are scared of communication. You might wonder why. But let's break it down. Where have you given your presentations? For most people in their lives, it's in two key areas, at work or, more importantly, at school, elementary school, high school, college. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about those presentations a bit. A hundred percent, not 90, not 85, not 50, a hundred percent of all of those presentations are mandatory. We don't wake up one morning and say, hey, David, would you like to get breakfast and present all day? <laughs> but he really says that. Right. right. And what do they That's- say instead? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go, let's go play sports or something else. That's the normal right. thing to do. Right. And then number two you never get to pick the topic. The education system is never, oh, David or Julia, what, what do you care about? What is something that you're passionate about? Do you like you know, basketball? Do you like um, cooking? Let's make you do a presentation on that. No, that's not what it is at all. It's, you know, David, I need you to do a presentation on Shakespeare. And we're kind of looking at them like, uh, what's, what's that? Who is this? <laughs> okay. Right, what is, okay. It's, so that's the second piece. And then the third piece is you're never really presenting to the best audience. Because when you're 15, you're 17, you're 19 years old, you're presenting to other people who don't really want to listen to you. Not because you're a bad speaker, but because they're worried about their own presentation. They're right. going right after you. Because they got to right. talk about Egypt. <laughs> exactly. So or the they'd school... rather be out playing baseball. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So essentially, the bottom line is the education system conditions us to believe that communication is a chore. And that to do so in front of a group of peers is is inherently fearful it's, it's a fear inducing exercise yeah you're right correct so no wonder we're scared of communication it's normal and then we go into the corporate world where your uh, next raise or promotion may depend on how well you're able to present your information so there's a lot at stake and so where there's a lot at stake and you don't get a chance to get comfortable with it. I can see how a lot of fear would come out of that. So when you've coached people who come to you and say, 
I've got to give a presentation and there's high stakes. Maybe it's to the C-level suite or the board of directors and I'm scared to death. What's the first thing you do with them as a coach? Absolutely. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well, since you are one as well. But I would say for, for me, David, it always starts with understanding the following. For that specific niche, I always tell them, you'll never get better in the boardroom. Never. Mm. Because every presentation you give is high stress. Every mm. presentation is always changing. And every presentation, to your point, is tied to a punishment. So what I always say instead is the first thing you need to do is you need to figure out a topic or a presentation that you can do over and over again outside of the corporate world mm -hmm. that benefits other people's lives. And then mm. Matt, use that technique and bring it back into the boardroom. Okay, so start by practicing on something that, that can make a difference to people. It's not just a space filler until you get comfortable using those techniques and then you can bring them back into the boardroom. Absolutely. And yeah. I can give you a very specific example of that oh, to make it clear. Absolutely. So, so let's take an example. I'm just going to use a random names here. So let's say Julie is a bank executive mm -hmm. and high stress job. You know, she does really well at, at the bank and she's scared of presentations. Typical example. So what I asked Julie in that case, I would say, what do you like to do outside of work? And, and she responds, well, I don't understand how this is relevant, Brendan, but, uh, you know, I cook, I run marathons and... I give a workshop to a leadership group for kids every quarter and go, okay, ah. on what topic? And she says, oh, marketing. Why is that relevant? I always go, how many times have you delivered that single presentation? She goes, oh, maybe like twice. I just started volunteering for that group two months ago. I say, this is your focus for the next three months, Julia. Make that presentation the best presentation of your life. Because if you master that, you're always going to help those kids because the kids will always change. But the technique you learn from that experience and 10xing that goes back into the bank. Wow, that's a, a, a terrific approach. I've never, never used quite that approach before. Um, and you asked me what I would say to someone who comes to me. Uh, I can think of a specific example some, some years ago now when I was uh, asked to judge a college speech contest. And one of the winners of that contest was a young student I met who was originally from, I want to say Brazil. This story is actually in, in one of my books. Um, and he came to me after winning his prize in the contest, because he, he was a good speaker. And he said something like, I've spoken to many audiences in my home country and now here in the United States. And I still get very nervous in front of an audience. And the thing that struck me was he had good skills. He had the skills he needed to win a speech contest at the college level. So I didn't think he was lacking in skill. What I thought he was lacking in was a certain amount of self-awareness because I think that he was, what made him nervous was feeling like he wasn't going to look as good as he wanted to. I think he had a lot, um, a lot tied up in his own perception of how well he came across. And so what I recommended to him was to get over that, you need to stop thinking about yourself and start thinking more about your audience. You know, what, is, what does that audience need from you? And I wish I had known your question at that time, because that's such a great question. You know, how will the world be different when you become 
uh, an outstanding speaker. Because it, I, I felt like if he got the focus off of himself hmm. and just relaxed into the role of delivering a message that was going to make a difference to this audience, that that could make a world of difference for him. And now we find ourselves in this virtual setting. How does that make things different? Well, first of all, that was super powerful. I completely agree. And, and your question would have been just as effective, by the way, right? How would, how would your audience's condition improve, mm-hmm. right? How would, how would their lives improve if you implement this? So I love that as well. Thank you. But yeah, in terms of the pre- online presentations, I would say the biggest difference is energy. Because when you're in person, if you're doing the same exact show in person, it's a lot more energy. We can also get lunch right after, right? <laughs> right. But, we, but, it, but when you're virtual, it's it's a lot harder to build that relationship with the people in your audience. It is. So, right. So yeah. there's a couple of ways that you can you can 10x your virtual presentations. I would say the first one is always keep an eye, and I'm sure you tell this to clients all the time, keep your eyes on the camera lens, like what I'm doing, we're both <laughs> right. doing right we're now. We're both doing right now. Yes. <laughs> so so way, practice to that now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and so people understand the difference when you're in the real world, you want to deviate your eye contact. You want to look at everyone in the room, but the magic of virtual, I always like to see the benefits like you do, mm-hmm. is you look in one direction, but even if you're speaking to a thousand people, you're looking at all thousand with only one stare, which is great. Mm, yes. So the way, so one fun way I like to do this, I, I kind of, I'm a bit tacky with my clients. You can have like a post-it note next to oh, yeah. the lens that just mm-hmm. says, look here or else. That's a fun one I like. <laughs> Another one is your favorite food. Your loved ones, like a baby that you recently had, maybe it's a niece that you really like. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's those are some ideas to to keep your eyes on the lens. Keep your eye on the lens. Okay, that's that's a good starting point. Um, you you implied there were others. Absolutely, yeah, of course. So that's the first one. The second one I would say is get on a phone call with the with the virtual presentations that really hit the nail. That, that are high impact with people that you know are going to be on the line. Mm. So one thing I like to do is I get on a phone call with somebody I know is going to be in the audience and I have a conversation with them. So it really helps me visualize as if I'm speaking right in front of them. That's the second tip. So when you, I'm sorry if, if, if I was interrupting you there, but when you have no, that fine. conversation, because I often hear speakers uh, advocate for talking to members of your audience ahead of time and finding out more about what keeps them awake at night. You know, what is the concern that's on their mind so you know what problem you're there to solve for that audience. So when you have this conversation ahead of time with someone you know is going to be in your audience, are there particular questions you like to ask? Absolutely. I would say a couple of them that stick out is what are some of the challenges you're facing right now in regards to the topic? Mm-hmm. That helps us really understand what what are some of the pains that they have. Their pain point, right? Absolutely. But the most important thing that besides the questions, mm-hmm. and I can give you two other ones. Like another one is, what's one outcome that would really make you happy to have invested the time in this workshop? Mm-hmm. And then a third one is, tell me more about you. Tell me more about your career what your dreams are, your aspirations. Mm -hmm. And the third one is more important because you really want to get to know the human. I think this works a lot with people, 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 persons, right? People, persons, I think what they call them. People who love people, (laughs) right? Extroverts, because it helps you visualize and really transfer the energy that they have back into you 
so that you can speak as if they're actually in front of you. And that gives you a lot of energy when you communicate ideas. I like that. I like that. So you can, you can visualize someone you know, someone you've spoken to and already made a connection with being out there in your virtual audience. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I like to do, and, and you can't really tell the way I've got this set up, but um, I, I have my, my Zudio, as I call it, <laughs> because I spent so much time doing Zoom in my studio, um, <laughs> with my funny. back to the wall, and I just have some fabric hanging back there. People tell me it looks like I'm trying to do a Johnny Carson monologue or something. <laughs> Maybe I'll change that out for something else, but it's better than the, the boring wall that's behind it. And then I've got my video lights, but I'm facing out into the room. And I see so much of the time people are trying to give virtual presentations, and they sit down at a table or desk that's against the wall. And so inches, maybe, maybe two feet from their face, they've got their screen and their camera. And perhaps inches beyond that is just a wall. And I think that creates a psychological barrier between speaker and audience. I like to have the room out here where I can visualize my audience beyond my camera and beyond my computer screen. To me, that, uh, that goes along with what you were just saying about knowing someone in my audience and feeling like I'm speaking to them. Absolutely, David. I love that trick. I love that you go the extra mile there as well. Well, thank you. Uh, I do spend, for the last year and a half, I've been spending a lot of my time right here. Um, I realize the look may get monotonous after a while. <laughs> you, you would know be what? both. I don't have uh, ring light reflections in my glasses. Uh, when I wear my glasses, I've got some nice umbrella reflectors over here. And, uh, you know, just a, a modest investment. I was able to set this up to where it works for me. Uh, but, oh, my goodness, I'm just aching to get back out in front of more live audiences. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the what's the first thing you see yourself doing when you have a chance to get out in front of a, a an auditorium full of people again? Oh, I'm fortunate. I already had two of those last month, oh, which good. is great. I'm finally back on the road. Yes, it's so great to be around people again. It's just not the same energy no. as it is virtual. Do you find that you learned something in the intervening time that you carried over into your uh, re renewed uh, live audiences again? Mm, that's that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. And and it's it's definitely a reflection exercise when you think about after this podcast is over. But right now, what I would say is my energy is a lot better in person than it used to be. Okay. Because since virtual forces us to increase our energy mm -hmm. with that added practice when we go back and i love your answer to the question as well but when we go back in person the energy bar is much higher than it used to be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i had someone tell me once years ago early in my speaking before i really had gone pro so to speak that a, a speaker on the platform should be just about 10 percent larger than life <laughs> you know that if if you are truly yourself in front of a, I would say a large room full of people, maybe not a boardroom, but a large audience, um, you're going to seem small somehow, I think, and the energy won't be there. But if you are too over the top, of course, people are going to recoil and, and be driven away. So I think that the key is finding that just right amount of energy. And uh, I'll be interested in finding out whether 
the adjustments I've made to my energy in the virtual world are going to carry over to some of those live audiences, as you say it has for you. Oh, I'm sure they will. <laughs> and this has been such a fun conversation. Um, I, uh, tell us again what your, uh, what your YouTube channel is called. Yeah, absolutely. It's Master Talk in one word. Or Master you can Talk. message me directly on LinkedIn as well. On LinkedIn as well. Okay. What else would you like my audience to know about you or about following up with you? You've already, you, you said they can contact you on LinkedIn. Is there Absolutely. something else you'd like them to know? Yeah, I would say the, the only thing left is I like to do free trainings every month. So if you want uh, updates on that, you can just click my LinkedIn profile. There's a link to join that free training as well. Oh, wonderful. I'll have to sign up for that <laughs> and, and send people your way as well. Uh, this has been a, a delightful conversation. I have enjoyed so much hearing your perspectives, uh, which are similar to mine and yet different in key ways. So I think my audience will have enjoyed that as well. Um, I loved your, your tips especially about overcoming fear and the, the tips for dealing with a, with a remote audience. Um, this has just been a lot of fun. And I thank you for your time in, in coming on The Power of Story and Science. Uh, I'm David Odie. I've been talking with Brendan Kumarasamy. And to all of my audience, thank you for being part of the Story and Science community. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.